Now, um, as you can probably tell, Buddy's still on the road. Uh, I know you'll be delighted to know that he'll be back with us uh, in time to, to, to be here for next Sunday. Uh, but today, you've got me preaching, and uh, you've been subjected to my preaching often enough that you've probably come to realize there's a few things you need to expect every time I preach. Uh, first of all, you're going to wind up hearing chunks of Scripture read over you. Um, that's not, it's not a cop-out. It's not because I don't have enough things to say uh, to fill up the time. It's because I very much believe the most important things you're going to hear from this pulpit today, or this little round table today, are the words of the Lord being spoken over you. Uh, and something else that you're probably going to hear at some point, I'm, in all likelihood, I'm going to use a word nobody else uses. Um, I'm going to use some sort of obscure vocabulary word that has never been in common usage or at least fell out a century or two ago. And, and finally, I'm probably going to attempt several snide comments that are, that are funny to me that, that usually aren't to other people. And, and I just want to go ahead and say right now, I'm sorry for that. Uh, but it's just something that, that winds up happening. So I, I want to apologize for that in advance. Uh, we're a grace-driven church, and, uh, and I'm glad of that. And, and finally, I hope that you've noticed that every time that I, I stand here, we always stop and we invite the Holy Spirit to speak in a special way. So we're going to do that right now before we jump in farther. Lord, we give you thanks that we have this moment set apart to hear from the Gospel of Luke. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would speak. We pray that if there's anything that I've prepared that's not in line with what your Spirit would say, that you would block me from saying it. And Father, I pray that you would give every one of us ears to hear what you want to tell us today from Luke chapter 5. We pray these things in the Christ. Amen. Well, we as a church family are swimming around in the Gospel of Luke for the foreseeable future. Uh, we don't really know when it's going to end. Buddy has just launched out into Luke, and we're going to talk about Luke till we're done talking about it. And that is a great thing. I am excited about this. I'm excited to be in a gospel as a church family. This is, this is good news. This is, this is the way things change is by, by hearing the stories and encountering the Christ. Now, one of the things that we've established early on in our series on Luke is, is what an artist Luke was. His level of education, his ability to switch between voices depending upon who's speaking or, or what impression he's trying to give, they all point toward his artistry as a writer. And because during that time, only the, only the elite were able to attain that level of education, they point toward his status as an insider. But one of the most interesting things about this gospel is that this gospel, written by someone who is unabashedly an insider, probably came from real money, he wrote the gospel that is most for the outsider. Luke's gospel records more stories about, about uh, poverty, about women, about foreigners than any of the other gospel writers. And so it's interesting to explore together what this gospel written by an insider for outsiders has to say to us today here in Montgomery, Alabama. It's part of the lens through which we're, we're looking at this gospel well, today we get to consider that moment when Jesus finally got around to calling his first disciples and then immediately defines for them what it means to follow him. Uh, we're going to hear the calling of Simon, a guy we normally call Peter. And Jesus also calls some of his fishing buddies to come along. And then right after that, he sets about explaining to them what it means to fish for men. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, to orient you to where we are in the text, in the story, the birth narrative has come and gone. Jesus has gone to the temple as a boy. Uh, John the Baptist has come. Jesus has been baptized. He's been tempted. We found the genealogy of Jesus that stretches all the way back to Adam, not just to Abraham. Found that sandwiched in between his baptism and his temptation. And Jesus' ministry started. He went home to start. And he started in Nazareth. And it started off pretty well right up until the point where, 
where the, the people that he grew up with decided to chuck the hometown hero off a cliff. And, and he's moved on, and now he's preaching and he's teaching in villages around the, the area. And that's where, that's where we pick up. So join with me in Luke chapter 5. We're going to just start there in verse 1. On one occasion, which is Luke's way of saying, I'm starting with a new story. While the crowd was pressing in on him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And that's just another word for Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and they were washing their nets. In other words, it was quitting time. They were done. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. This is one of those moments where I wish we had an audio recording. I'm curious to know how Peter the fisherman responded to Jesus the carpenter with fishing instructions. Was he, was he patronizing? Was, was, was he frustrated? Was he, was, was he excited about getting a catch? We, we, don't, we don't know exactly, but we do know what he did. He obeyed. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled their boat so that the both the boats began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Now, there's a few things here in this story that we get to notice about Simon that that I believe point toward why Jesus would have chosen him. Out of all the guys hanging out around the shore of Galilee that day, why did he choose Simon? Why did he think he was ready above anybody else? Well, first of all, Simon was willing to do whatever his master said. And honestly, this was unexpected obedience or or acquiescence to Jesus. Remember who Jesus was. He was a carpenter from nowhere Israel. And he was an itinerant rabbi telling Simon and his buddies, all of whom were at least moderately successful fishermen, how to do their job. They'd fished all night, they'd caught nothing, and now he's telling them, okay, now in the heat of the day, put back out into water and you'll see, you'll catch something. This is is the equivalent of me walking into Camo for Christ on Wednesday night with tips on bow hunting. Or it's, uh, thanks for that laughter, I appreciate that. And, uh, and, or, or it's Buddy Bell hosting a conference on technology in the church. You know, these are, these are just things that are, that are ludicrous, that make no sense. So why in the world did Simon obey? Well, first of all, we need to remember this wasn't a cold call. Simon already knew Jesus. Back in chapter 4, Simon's mother-in-law was sick. Jesus came in. And he healed her. He healed her not just to the point where where she was well, but where she could get up and immediately start serving. Then Jesus used that house as a base from which to heal all the sick in the community that could be brought to Jesus. And and incidentally, I just want to stop right here. and, And I just want to point out to you the growth in me as a preacher. I know you're all concerned about this, that I will mature in this craft. The old Andy right here would have stooped to make some joke about how as soon as Simon saw his mother-in-law was well and was not going to pass, he decided it was a good time to hit the road. But the new Andy just ignores those sorts of things and just presses on without calling attention to them. But the fact is, Simon had also heard Jesus' teaching. 
and he was ready to trust him. He was ready to head out into deeper waters simply because Jesus told him to. And in fact, Jesus seems to make a habit of making the best use of people who have followed him from the shores out into the deeper waters. Number two, Simon reacted to Jesus with appropriate humility. When he saw that unexpected haul of fish, he knew that he was in the presence of someone special. He was so convicted, he reacted much like Isaiah the prophet did when he encountered God. He fell on his face, terrified of the presence of a holy one because he knew of his own unholiness. And by the way, if you think that confession is something that's going to be neat and tidy, if you think that it's something that you can control or that you can spend, you need to consider again Simon. Remember where he is when he falls down at Jesus' feet. He's in a boat so full of fish that it's sinking. So Simon's confession of faith at Jesus' feet involves a face full of fish flopping around in this boat. But it's worth it because he suddenly knew who he was in the light of who Jesus is. You see, Simon thought that as a sinner, he had no chance with God. But what Jesus knew was that this understanding of being less than God, this understanding of knowing that you're less than holy and you're face down with the fish, this is exactly what God can work with. This is the kind of guy that is teachable. This is the sort of thing that made Jesus want to pour the next three years of his life into a guy like Simon. And finally, number three, Simon fully committed to his Lord. In fact, did you notice that switch that Simon made in the text? At the beginning, when when he is Simon the fisherman talking to Jesus, the carpenter, he calls him master. And this is a term of respect. It's it's a word that about half the time we find in the New Testament, we actually translate it as, as just a teacher. So it's a word of respect, but there's definitely an upgrade in the allegiance level when Simon calls him Lord. He's changing his terms. Lord is a following word. Lord is a submitting word. Lord is a disciple's word. See, a teacher's goal is to equip students to the point where they no longer need them. One of the interesting things about following Jesus is that the longer you follow him, the more you realize that you need him. You never reach that point where you're done, where Jesus is finished with you. You are always compelled to draw even closer to him. And lastly, I want you to pay attention to this fact. It was only after Simon agreed to follow Jesus into the deeper waters and discovered who he was in Jesus that Jesus finally revealed to him his purposes for his life. You see, many of us seem to think that God's going to come to us. He's going to lay all of his cards on the table and he's going to ask us if we want this. But that's not how Jesus worked here and it doesn't seem to be how God or Jesus worked throughout scripture. Instead, we have a command to take Jesus at his word and to start following without really knowing where he's leading us. So these are the three things that Jesus seemed to have seen in Simon. He was willing to do what his master said. He reacted with appropriate humility and he fully committed to his Lord. But the question now remains, what does this look like? That's a really neat metaphor, this whole fishing for men thing. It fits real well with fishermen. But what does it look like? What are the kinds of fish Jesus is interested in catching? Well, I believe that Jesus very intentionally set about discipling these men right away, immediately, illustrating for them the kind of fish he wants them to catch. These next three incidents that Luke records for us, I think, paint one picture of a certain kind of fish. 
Now, I began at the beginning by referencing how Luke is such an artist, how he's able to create things in his account. And I believe this is one of those instances where we see Luke really exercising his artistic chops. He records this invitation from Jesus, and then he sets about painting a picture in three scenes. Now, when an artist does this, we call it a triptych. In case you're keeping notes, this is the word that nobody uses that that I'm pulling out. It's three images that are intended to be appreciated together. Three images that together tell one story. It gives an artist the freedom to tell a story more in depth than he would if he just had the one canvas. I'll give you an example. Um, One that's, go ahead and pull that up for me. One that's real commonly illustrated in the way of a triptych is, is the crucifixion of the Christ. So this is one where there on the left, you see Jesus carrying his cross. And there on the right, you see Jesus having come down from the cross. And there in the middle, in the center panel, you see the Christ on the cross. And in this, the artist is able to do so much more than if he just had one canvas to work with. He's able to, he's able to show the passage of time. He's able to show who was with Jesus in all the different scenes. He's able to show that the middle one takes primacy. So it's able to add so many more layers to a painting when they do them as three. And I think that's what Luke is doing for us right here. I think he's trying to tell us one story in three different panels. And so we're going to look at those three different panels and see what Luke is trying to tell us. So let's just continue on. We're going to just continue in Luke chapter 5 where we left off at the beginning. While he was in one of their cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face we've heard this before, and begged him, Lord, again, we've heard that word before, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he charged the man to tell no one, but instead, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So here in our first scene, we find a leper. We don't know exactly what kind of skin disease he had. It really doesn't matter. But what we do know is the outcome of it. He was ostracized. He was alienated from, from his community, from his family, and from his God, or, or at least from his religion. And he was condemned never to be touched again by a healthy person. And he comes to Jesus much like Simon did in the boat, having fallen face down before Jesus in filth, his own this time instead of a whole bunch of fish. He calls Jesus Lord, and he acknowledges his own uncleanliness. Because we need to pay attention to this. This man wasn't just sick. This man was unclean. According to the understanding of the day, this kind of illness wasn't just on the inside. It welled up from some kind of uncleanliness on the inside. Everyone, probably the leper himself included, assumed that he had this disease because of sin. Simply getting well getting rid of the outward sickness was not going to be enough to restore him to the community. He needed to be made clean and to be officially recognized as such. Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, all 116 verses. It's it's glorious reading. All 116 verses of Leviticus 13 and 14 are about what it takes for a priest to declare a leper clean. 
That's what a big deal it was. And so that's why we have this bit about Jesus telling him to go and present himself to the priests. Yes, Jesus healed him. But no one would believe he was clean until the priests said he was. Can you imagine this guy going back home? He, he walks in, maybe he walks into mom and dad's house or, or in some ways, even more tragically, he walks into, into his own home where his wife and his kids are and, and he comes in at dinner time and as he walks in the house, everyone screams and, and they don't run to him, they back away from him. And no amount of showing them that the sores on his face were gone or rolling up his sleeves and showing that his hands were clean would have convinced him that he was truly clean. The only way people would have believed this guy was clean was if the priest said so. Jesus knew this, and therefore he sent him to the authorities so that everyone in the community would believe. And in so doing, Jesus cleansed the leper, and he also restored him to the community. Now for this series, though, we've called it unexpected. That's another one of the lenses that we're using to look at Luke's gospel. We're looking for the unexpected things. There's a couple of things here. First of all, there's that touch. It's a very brave thing to do. And a compassionate one. We see Jesus reach out and touch the man. And the more that I've read this story this week, I really don't think, I'm not convinced that the touching was a part of the healing. In other places, Jesus heals lepers simply by speaking. I'm, I've, I've wondered if it's not his words that healed him and Jesus didn't touch him just because he's a compassionate man and he wanted to be the first one to touch this man in a long, long time. The other unexpected thing to me, probably the more, more unexpected thing, is that Jesus reversed the direction of cleanliness. He'd reversed the direction of holiness. We've talked about how this kingdom is turned upside down by Jesus. Now, according to the law, clean people who touch unclean things become unclean. Uncleanliness always trumps cleanliness. As any parent who sends their kids outside on Saturday morning to clean and then lets them back in the house discovers, uncleanliness always trumps cleanliness. Now a clean man who touched a dead body becomes unclean. A clean man who eats bacon or shrimp or for sure bacon wrapped shrimp is unclean. Anyone who touches a leper becomes unclean right up until that moment. Jesus' holiness was such that he reversed the direction of cleanliness. Jesus' holiness infected the leper's uncleanliness and changed him. The man was already cleansed. He needed to present himself to the priest to prove what had already happened. Now, one last thing before we move on to scene number two. I believe it's significant that Luke records that Jesus withdrew from the crowds to pray. This rhythm that Jesus modeled for us of resting and abiding with God and then working and then resting and abiding with God is is a life-giving rhythm that our frenetically paced society ignores. Resting in God is wasted time, according to the world. And instead, we fuel ourselves with more caffeine and more energy drinks and more addictions to work and to play and other things, when instead, we need to be modeling our lives after that of the Christ. If we'd started our sermon just a few verses earlier today, at the end of chapter four, we would have found our hero already already withdrawing to desolate places to pray. Now, here's the thing. According to most counts, if you add it up, Jesus probably had three years of active ministry. All of created history had been moving toward these 1,100 days. Every moment counted. And yet Jesus considered rest and time with God important enough 
to carve out time during those three years of ministry on earth that he made it a regular practice to seek out his God. How much more should we? All right, so that's the first picture Luke paints for us. Let's keep going. We're going to pick back up in verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. And if we had a soundtrack to our reading, that's the point where thunder would have rolled as the bad guys burst on the scene. They'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said to the man, man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks these blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he says to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, He rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and he went home glorifying God and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and they were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. No kidding they had. In this second scene that Luke records to illustrate the kind of fish that Jesus is after, we find Jesus once again speaking to the heart of a matter or to a person once again. We find men of faith or at least men who believe enough in his healing powers to go out of their way to get to him, bringing a paralytic friend to Jesus for healing, only to find their way blocked by this crowd. So undaunted, they go rogue, and they climb the roof with their buddy, which was a harrowing experience for the guy. Uh, I had a mental exercise this week where I sat down and tried to think of what four friends in my life today I would trust to carry me upstairs to an attic and lower me down. And, uh, and I, could, I, I don't think I could name any, actually. Uh, but, so they, they, but they climb up on top of this roof to crack open a house and drop him down. I don't think we understand exactly what a big deal this was. This wasn't a sand castle that they could knock down and rebuild. We lived with people who lived in dirt houses with flat roofs, and they aren't made to have sunroofs. This was a really big deal, what they did. And they lowered this man down in front of Jesus, and Jesus sees their faith lived out in actions and forgives the paralytic's sins. Now, to the onlookers, and honestly to me in some respects, this freely given grace is ridiculous. It's you stepping on my toes and swindle forgiving you. It doesn't make sense. But somehow, their faith lived out sufficed for Jesus to forgive the sins of the paralytic. And make no mistake, everyone there knew the paralytic needed to be forgiven. In the theology of sickness and health of the day, Lepers were sinners. Paralytics were sinners too. They both needed cleansing. They both needed forgiving. And they both needed a proof to the community that they'd been fully restored. And Jesus provides this for the man. And he's finally able to go home. Those beautiful words that Jesus adds, go home. 
In response to the unspoken questions of the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus provides all the proof needed that he has the authority to forgive sins. And in so doing, he actually confirms the grumbling of those Pharisees. Yes, only God can forgive sins. Now, saying that he could forgive sins is the kind of thing that was going to get Jesus in trouble, but that was really hard to prove. How do you prove that someone's sins have been forgiven? So in order that the man might be most forgiven and restored to the community, Jesus does what he's already been making a habit of doing. He heals the man in order to prove that he has the authority to do what had not been done before, which is to forgive sins. So what kind of fish is Jesus looking for? In scene number two, it's the forgiven and the restored kind that finally get to go home. Number three, we're going to read our third and final scene in this triptych that Luke is painting for us. After this, Jesus went out. He managed to finally get out of the crowd. And he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to Levi, follow me. And leaving everything, which we've heard before, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Notice what Luke calls them. He calls them tax collectors and others. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." So we've come now to our third and final scene that Luke paints of fish in what is oddly enough a scene that was as unexpected as the other two by his new disciples. See, Jesus goes out and he sees a tax collector, pursues him, invites him to follow. And once again, Jesus is changing up the direction things normally follow. Students pursue rabbis. No self-respecting rabbi hits the road and goes looking for sinners and asks them to become his disciples. Unless, of course, you're Jesus. In which case, that's exactly what you do. Because Jesus seeks sinners while the rest of the world shuns them. Now, Levi's response to this is unexpected, as is Jesus' reaction to it. Levi, having been invited to follow a new Lord, throws a party and he invites all of his co-workers. I imagine at this point Simon was kicking himself for leaving those boats full of fish instead of having a goodbye fish fry with his buddies. You see, tax collectors of the day were hated, not just because they took people's money or even because they took more of people's money than they were supposed to, but because they were sellouts. They were traitors to their nation and to their religion, to their communities. It's kind of tough to make friends when you're that guy with anybody other than those people. But you know what else? All of that constant contact with unclean Roman Gentiles would have left Levi unclean. Here is our third unclean fish that Jesus wants to go after. Now normally, if you eat at the table of an unclean host, you would become unclean yourself. But Jesus reverses the direction again. He infects that table of sinners with his holiness and he explains that he came to earth specifically for sinners to come to repentance. He comes to invite them and then to restore them to the community. In fact, it's a community of people that look a whole lot like they do. 
Now, one of the interesting things about Jesus, the dinner guest, is how he always winds up dominating the landscape, how the meal winds up being about whatever it is that Jesus wants it to be about. When you invite Jesus to your table, you're surrendering control of the meal. And right now we're going to do that. I'll go ahead and ask the men who are serving communion to, to head on back and take your places. You see, we've already spoken of how often Jesus eats in Luke. In fact, if, if the only gospel you've got is the gospel of Luke, it's easy to see how he would have been accused of being a glutton. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's eating in the gospel of Luke. But that's coming. That's all in the future. This is the first one. This is the first meal that we have recorded where Jesus sits down to table and eats. And what table did he choose? That of a sinner. Now just as an aside, let's be honest. If you're going to eat, would you rather have eaten with Pharisees and scribes? Or would you rather have sat down at table with the tax collectors and the sinners? Mark Twain, America's preeminent riverboat theologian, once said that having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. They were just more fun. And I think from looking at our Lord's life, we know that he would have enjoyed a good meal with tax collectors and sinners. But we've come to a time in our weekly rhythm when we all get to come to the table with sinners. That's true. We might have set this table. We might have, we might have put the crackers in the, in the plates and the, and the juice in the cups. But Jesus is really the host of this meal. And this meal is going to be about what Jesus wants it to be about. This meal is about cleansing. It's about forgiveness. It's about invitation. And it is most certainly about restoration into the family. The table over which the Christ presides is open to all who come in his name. So I'm going to pray and we're going to share in the body together. Father, we give you thanks that you made a habit of eating with sinners. And Father, as we sit today and as we receive this cracker, which represents your body, we are so glad that we get to be counted among them, those that you have chosen to grace with your presence at a table. And so Father, as, as your son Jesus both is the host and is the meal, Father, we pray that we would eat in a way that brings glory to you. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to forgive us and cleanse us and invite us and restore us more deeply into your family. We pray all of these things in the Christ. Amen. Now, not often did the Jesus tell us why he came. Today, though, we have seen Jesus' mission statement. This is, this is what he would have put at the beginning of his video announcements every week. He would have said that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but to invite sinners to repentance. Today, in this place, we as the bride of Christ echo what our bridegroom has already said. We invite sinners, which includes every one of us, to repentance. See, every one of us is somewhere along that continuum of obedience that we talked about with Simon. We've each heard that call of our master to go out to deeper waters. Some of us are still f waiting to figure out, are we going to answer that? Are we going to go out into deeper waters with our master? Will we prove willing to push out to deeper waters and let down our nets even when it doesn't make sense and when we think that we might know better? Others of us have come a little farther along that process. We're at the point where we know that we're sinners confronted with following a holy Lord. And so the question is, 
Are we going to remain standing in our stubborn and our foolish pride? Or are we going to bow with our faces to the ground, with our faces to the fish, and beg our Lord to make us clean? And others of us are facing that choice of whether or not we're going to fully commit to our Lord. We're ready to change from the word master to the word Lord and to fully commit to him. We're going to have to choose. Are we going to be disciples of the living Christ or are we going to stay with the boats? We have to choose whether or not we're going to follow him as together we fish for people. Now in all of this, I have the privilege this morning of standing in front of you and telling you it's gospel. There is good news. Jesus is still looking for that kind of fish. He is still searching for people who are in need of cleansing from a disease that's rotting their insides as well as their out. He's still searching for people in need of forgiveness, people who might come to Jesus thinking they need one thing, but find that he knew all along they really needed something else. And Jesus is still out searching for disciples. He's still out looking for people to invite to follow him. They might be people who've betrayed their community, who've betrayed their God or their family or even themselves. Jesus invites you today. So whether you need to come for cleansing or for forgiveness or for the invitation to follow, Jesus is ready to restore you to his community. And your church family as the bride of Christ together is ready to receive you and to restore you to your place in our community. We're waiting on you. The feast is ready. So come and sit at table with us here on the front row as we stand and sing.